Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from the Eastern Cape in South Africa is Professor Julie Wells, who is an Associate Professor Emeritus and Head of the Isikumbuzo Applied History Unit at Rhodes University. Given that we're in Heritage Month, we feel that this is an opportune time to reflect on our roots and how history impacts on the present, which ultimately shapes the future. Welcome to the show, Professor Wells. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy to learn of the good work that you're doing. To begin with, I think it's only fitting that coming out of Women's Month, reflecting on the title of your PhD thesis, which was the history of South African women's resistance to pass laws for the period 1900 to 1960, you've had a long-standing research interest in black women and resistance in South Africa, which has also expanded to understanding the role of, of gender as a force in South African history. So thinking about our past, what would you say have been some of the most poignant moments for women in South African history? Um, I think one of the really important things that does come out in, in, in my thesis and the subsequent book and other publications is that a very robust period of resistance in 1913 went almost unacknowledged. It was just barely mentioned in a couple of history books, but it was one of the topics of my research. And once I got into it, I came to the conclusion, and I'm still convinced it was a correct conclusion, that what those women did in 1913 actually meant women did not have to carry passes for another 50 years. So to have been part of a movement that brought around 50 years of reprieve from oppressive laws, I think is perhaps the most amazing achievement we could look at. And what did they do in 1913? Well, there, it was only in the Orange Free State um, province at that time that women were required to carry some kind of pass. And the women there were actually rather well-informed, fairly cosmopolitan, fairly in touch with other trends around the country. And they knew they were the only ones who had to carry the passes. They hated them. Passes were used to, um, for police to use as an excuse for molesting women. It was used for all kinds of constraints that the women very fiercely resented. So basically what they did was that they, they had marches, they had demonstrations, but I think perhaps most telling of all, they would gather up their past documents, spear them onto a coat hanger, and throw the coat hangers at the police and say, take your passes, we don't want them, put us in jail. They did go to jail. They apparently suffered some, some very harsh consequences while in jail. It was in the middle of winter. They weren't given shoes or proper clothing, but um, they persevered. And at the end of the day, the government said, we really dare not push women because this is what's going to happen. And that remained the view of decision makers and government, as I said, for the next 50 years. So, yeah, they were, they were terribly militant, very determined, and they made a case. 
thinking about that determination and based on the research that you've done, can you tell us about some of the women who've been involved in the resistance movement and ultimately led to the country's freedom and women's rights? Yes, of course, there were many. If you're having a big movement, um, there are all sorts of unsung heroines who, who, who are taking part. But the three that I would mention who were, who were very active that I met in the course of my research, who really stick with me as absolute perfect examples of that kind of unwavering dedication and commitment to what they believed in the bottom of their hearts was the right thing. One was Josie Mpama. There's a, a book has recently been published about her life, which I hope your readers will, will look for. She led a, a women's resistance movement in 1930 in Potsdam. I happened to meet her and interview her. I got all the details about this event, which I knew nothing about, went into the archives, read the newspapers, read the government documents, and could put together a very complete story about those particular events. She remained really a, a bastion of strength. After that, a little bit more recently in time, but still a long time ago, would be the leaders of the 1950s. I'm happy to say that uh, the two perhaps most famous leaders of that period were people that I met, and I met and talked to and interviewed probably on several occasions and got involved in their lives and in a few other little minor ways, uh, would be Helen Joseph and Lillian Ngoy. When I met them, it was in the 1970s. They had been proscribed, limited as leaders, subject to banning orders and house arrest and so on, since 1960. So they were already well into their second decade of being suppressed, you might say. But the spirit that they had about themselves, about the past that they had been so important in leading, and their understanding of current conditions in the mid-70s and what was needed at that time were, were just absolutely inspiring. So I think those would be the people who really had the biggest influence. For me, it, what was important was this attitude that said, you never give up. You know you're standing for the right thing, so you'll just keep finding ways no matter how oppressive conditions can be. Uh, I think it's, it's an incredible fighting spirit. It's so admirable, and I was thinking about the, the spirit, the, the passion, and mm-hmm. how it would be possible to, to almost distill this spirit and, and the belief and being able to disseminate it to other people so that they become as captivated in a positive way and, and galvanized together behind an idea or concept to, to bring about change. Yes, I think it's very important that historians and other interpreters of history do everything they can to try to put forward what that spirit was. My own supervisor in my studies quickly came up with a concept that I think really stuck. She said the energy that women showed when they resisted, she said, was like steam. It is so powerful, it cannot be contained. And I think it was it was a very good analogy. So I think, I think we just have to keep, keep repeating these stories, 
as far as we can, of course, to find the words of the women themselves and and so on. But 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 keep saying how much adversity they faced and how bravely they faced it, because I think it will help people to to get a little more stamina and resilience um, in dealing with current issues. As a historian, you you've mentioned briefly two core events that were were not really captured in the record. So 1913, the movement in the Orange Free State. 1930, with Josie and Palmer in Potchefstroom. Every day, history is being made. But what determines what is going to be put down in the history books and what is going to be excluded? And because whatever is put down and documented, that's what people are going to remember. But there's a ton of work of of episodes that actually gets forgotten because it's simply not recorded. You're absolutely right. And that extends even far beyond women, who we should all know by now, obviously occupy a place of semi-invisibility in society. But if you look even, even more widely in South Africa, the history of black people in general, especially the further back you go in history, is almost non-existent. And so it's, uh, I think it's just a mission, it's a task of current historians to go and to try to dig out information where they get it. As, as I said, you know, with the case with Josie and Palma, somebody just said, oh, there's a woman who was an activist, go meet her. And I did, and then this, this whole story came out. Um, that actually happens sometimes. You know, when, when you're doing historical research, you... You, you get actually extremely excited by the surprises that you find. So I would say, yeah, people must just keep going and keep looking and keep digging. There's an awful lot of what we call in the history profession reading against the grain, which means you go into the archives that are very male-dominated, very white-dominated, very power-centric, um, but there are little stories there about real people. And we say, yeah, look for what people did. What were their actions? We might not have their words, but we get clues about how they felt by what they did. So it takes a special, a special kind of, of digging. I would, I would wish we lived in the kind of world where anybody who said, I know of a special story from my mother or my grandmother or my community, would come forward and say, I want to tell this story. I want it to be known. Because there are a lot of very buried, almost secret, hidden histories that um, I think deserve attention. And fortunately today, with our interest in gender equality, there is certainly a willingness on the part of historical publishers to publish these stories. And they're, they're highly valued. But it, because of the nature of women's own second-class citizenship, it's they're probably a little bit harder to dig out. I'm sure I remember reading something which almost went to the effect that whoever is in power or whoever dominates will characterize the way that history is written. No, it's absolutely the case. It's really the most powerful dynamic I think we're living with at the moment given what our students in South Africa broadly call the transformation agenda, it is saying we don't accept that anymore. We have to have other voices. We, we 
are not just here to reiterate and reconstruct and and affirm structures of power, but we're here to change them. But it takes a deliberate effort to go out and find the stories that were not told by people in power. Thinking about the, the transformation notion, South Africa as a country is incredibly diverse. Uh, our, our roots come from across the globe. Thinking about a, a person's identity, our identity stems from our history. Uh, it's shaped by our past experiences and memories, our, our culture, our beliefs. But heritage and identity are not fixed constructs, and they've got this potential to change as we encounter new experiences and as we go through this transformation agenda. So could you share with us a little about the complexity of involved of, of how we can, on the one hand, preserve heritage, but on the other hand, create new traditions? It's a very interesting question. Personally, I think one of the important questions for our time is to what is the role and meaning and point and purpose of some of our inherited ethnic identities? Um, I tend to think that um, labeling people was really a characteristic of the apartheid era. And I suppose I've always liked to dig out the stories of where people loved each other instead of hated each other, um, where people move from one community to another, the idea of hybrid identities, mixed cultural identities, basically to say that all of the labels that apartheid considered to be sort of sacred were very flexible. There are, there are lots of other, other histories besides one that says, you know, there was this nation and that nation and that nation and, and that each of them has special culture. Given that, I think it's important for us to to be aware of exactly the fluidity of identities, people who could alter, shift, and change or step out of a narrow identity into a wider, maybe more human one. Um, But on the other hand, there is still the the very important issue of affirming a lot of aspects, particularly of African culture and African history, and a lot of that affirming of the past comes within the context of um, ethnic identities, partly because that's the way the histories have always been written. But anyway, it still it still means a lot to people. They feel that's that's them. It's personal. It goes deep. It's you know. And I don't think we want to take it away from people. So if we could have new rituals, I wish we would have rituals that actually acknowledge the togetherness that people showed across what were supposed to be the lines of division. It sort of show examples of the unity that, that sort of comes. And in fact, when I think of the question, I can almost visualize some kind of a special statue to the women of Africa who were involved in marriages that were constructed to form diplomatic alliances between often warring nations. The daughter of the defeated chief would marry the son of the winner chief, and then there would be peace. So the women who had to transcend all of the differences and all of the violence and all of the fighting and all of the wars, I think deserve a monument because it's it's sort of a concept that we're we're not very familiar with, but women have, have been the peacemakers and they've been the people who built the bridges between 
communities and united people um, when men were fighting. I hadn't thought about this previously, but what you're saying is, is so significant because you're coming out of your culture. You have been at war with the person that is now going to be your spouse. You now have to adopt his traditions. You have to make peace mm-hmm. and, and, and navigate, which you're so right, must have been incredibly challenging. I, I think so. If I could just make uh, a couple of points when, as we as we dig into this, the history of the Eastern Cape, we have asked the question, what was the difference between African population groups who moved into an area that was already occupied by other African groups compared to people from Europe who moved into the same areas? And basically, you know, what were the dynamics? And the bottom line is African people, when they engage each other, consolidate friendship through intermarriage. And that was something Europeans never did when they came to Africa. So I think it's a, it's a very, very important difference is that, you know, in every case, in fact, although I've recently been looking at a whole category of people called Gonakwa, who were a mix of Xhosa and Khoi. So there was intermarriage and men and women finding each other, you know, it was, was going on for hundreds of years in the Eastern Cape. That's uh, why the, the language is full of cliques, because they found each other. Um, but anyway, compare it to your, your European colonization with its racism, never, never promoted intermarriage. And that, that was such a huge difference. Secondly, I'd like to pay tribute to, I've once had a very meaningful conversation about this with the queen of the Amahachabe, who unfortunately died earlier this year due to the pandemic. Um, but we were talking about it. She was a Zulu princess, King Z- Goodwill's Relatini's sister, who was brought into the Hachabe kingdom as the royal wife. And so and we, we talked about it. I said, how, how does it feel when you know, you're actually from somewhere else, but now your husband died and now you are the queen. You are the one who's ruling everything. And she, she acknowledged, she said, it is very, very, very hard. And yeah, at that time, she was encouraging there to be you know, more research on this thing, of, you know, the women as the ambassadors, as the diplomats between kingdoms. So yeah, I think it's, it's a, I, hope, I hope we'll inspire people to take it up as a research topic. Thanks for, for sharing that insight and re- recanting a little bit of the, the conversation that you had with her and, and her direct experiences. I've been thinking about movements recently and generally when you, you hear things on, on the Twitter sphere or in Facebook or, or whatever social media channel it is, movements tend to be fleeting if they're they're not ignited or if they don't have a, a, a strong enough following that keeps fueling things. And I was thinking about the Women's March of 1956, which obviously we commemorate on an annual basis as, as a, an event which was very successful, but was organized without cell phones or, or social media. Today, we've got these tools and platforms which have got an opportunity of being able to to accelerate or advance movements to to drive change in your opinion how do you think these modern tools and aspects of of social media can be used to, to help direct and change 
gender equality? I think, as you've already indicated, it's a little bit of a mixed bag that using social media can be very superficial, can be very much just living in the moment. I would hope that everybody on planet Earth by now has given some serious thought to the difference in quality between distance communication and face-to-face. We've now gone through this, this, this year of 2020 with limited face-to-face encounters. What difference does it make? I think most people are feeling that you actually you really lose something when you're not actually sitting with people and, and talking to them directly. Uh, I would say, again, yes, let's, you know, learn the history. Look back to the 1956 March. You could read about the stories, uh, particularly Helen Joseph talks a lot about how they organized for that march. Anyway, it was, it was a huge amount of meetings and planning and discussion and trying everything. And, and in those days, for white and black women and brown women to all come together to discuss and make plans wasn't easy. I mean, even having a place where you could sit safely without being interrupted was not easy. So, in fact, there need to come together physically actually probably cemented their commitment and their relationship in a way that I can't imagine your, your quick, quick fix demonstrations and things you know, happening by social media would achieve. I'm not sure that you would leave room in your social media campaigns, say, for the qualities of leadership that those kind of old-fashioned leaders actually had because part of the quality is you have to be able to sit and discuss with people the ins, the outs, the pros, the cons, etc. It's not just, I say this, let's do it, and it's done, but a lot, a lot more maturity in weighing up your options and your implications. I think, sadly, we're seeing a lot of these social media revolutions actually don't last very long. They, they don't have the kind of long life that maybe many people hope for. Also, I'm always suspicious of social media. It seems the wind can blow in any kind of direction. And there are often social media is used to reinforce existing beliefs and stereotypes. What we need to make change is to challenge those stereotypes. And sometimes you have to explain to people why, what they thought yesterday, what their parents thought, etc., is is inadequate, why we should change now. So whether we're getting the depth of understanding about issues through the use of social media, I doubt. Um, I would encourage you know, any, any young person who really wants to go change the world to never overlook the power of sitting together and wrestling out issues until you understand absolutely what's at stake. Yes, issues are multidimensional and people do have different opinions and I think it's only in a forum where you can afford the opportunity of, of hearing the different voices mm-hmm. to to be able to take stock of, of where the movement could be going or fizzling out. One area that you, you touched on briefly here was about leadership. I think that leadership is such an important component for women and that we don't have nearly enough female leadership. Yes, from a political point of view, we've got 50% representation in cabinet, 
But when you go into the corporate sector, even in the academic space, our numbers are, are really not as, as high as they should be. What are some of your views there? Well, I think perhaps an important starting point here is to say that you know, South Africa is a country that's been through its own struggle, its own revolution. When you look back um, during that struggle, okay, well, first of all, one of the things that I saw from my research was that when women were more militant than men, the men would tell them to slow down and wait for the men to catch up. But the logic throughout our liberation struggle, most of the liberation struggles of the 60s, 70s, 80s in the world was always, oh, of course, everybody who's fighting for liberation understands freedom and equality and all of that, and the gender equality is just part and parcel of it. We don't need to talk about it as a special issue. It's just freedom for everybody is what was, was the standard line during, during those struggles. But now that we're more than 25 years after the end of that struggle, and we are facing gender-based violence and problems um, that just haven't gone away at all. I think, yeah, by now we're learning, we're seeing, we're living with the consequences of the fact that gender discrimination, like racial discrimination, runs so deeply in society that you're not going to change it by superficial means. I think in South Africa, I would say, sadly, we've learned writing equality into all of our laws and even setting up special structures to try to help make it happen was not nearly enough. The problems are in people's cultures and their attitudes and et cetera. So I would say um, you know, our, lots of our gender issues go beyond legal frameworks and, and need a lot of hard work. But, uh, but because the discrimination runs so, so deeply, I will remain uh, a firm advocate of quotas because I'm afraid if you don't have a rule that says 50-50, you just won't get there. So I, I think people need to be braver, perhaps, in arguing for quotas. Of course, with quotas, we always hope that people who are getting into positions will be there on because of their merit, not just because of their, their gender. Um, but it, it's part of, it's part of the ongoing development. So, yeah, I think we just have to keep pushing within the quota system. Uh, I would wish that women would have a very clear sense of themselves as activists, having a mandate to bring about fundamental changes not just be happy that they made it into the boys club. Hope they can develop and, and maintain and preach some kind of a feminist perspective. What if you look across the academic spectrum in terms of, of topics, frequently when we have conversations with, with deans, heads of department, it's always refreshingly surprising to hear that the number of undergraduates are biased towards females than, than men. I know that there's still challenges within the postgraduates, um, postgraduate environment of getting more women into the space, but mm -hmm. it shows that women are across different disciplines and, and that they have a presence. And I completely agree with you on, on a quota system. And often, you know, if we're thinking about racial discrimination as well as gender discrimination, if we didn't have BEE 
quotas in place, then we wouldn't have been able to change and drive transformation. And I see no difference in having gender quotas in that place to help drive gender transformation. Well, I'm glad that you agree. And and also, I'm, I'm excited and inspired by the, I'll say, strong-minded, self-confident young women who are coming up through the academic ranks uh, because they will have that, that self-presence, I think, to really make a difference. And at least they're not, not I mean, by and large, you know, they're not really accepting uh, a, a subordinate kind of status. So that's the kind of future I think we need to to keep encouraging and and hope that you know, we'll we'll see it. So we actually get to a place where you now can you imagine someday maybe they need to have male quotas because women are dominating everything. Yes, and I often think about the University of of Cape Town being a a prime example of having such a, a strong cohort of female leadership and. When people talk about it, they'll go, oh, you know, look at this institution, look at all the female leadership. But if you cast your mind back to a few years ago when you had an all-male leadership, no one went, oh, look at this institution, look at all the male leadership. Well, probably the feminists did, and that's, yes. I think that's the point, is you have to sort of keep it up, you have to keep up the pressure, you have to keep talking about it until people begin to acknowledge that the way things used to work should not be accepted as normal any longer. A true... Yeah. And Prof Wells, besides looking at gender quotas as a way of being able to implement our legislative and legal frameworks, are there any other elements that you think we need to help create a more egalitarian and, and equal society for women and men in the country? At the moment, my my first response to that would be what we just don't seem to have achieved yet is a way of speaking to men about their limited worldviews. Um, for example, yeah, I listened to the president's address last night. I mean, he does bring up gender-based violence all the time, uh, but it's all, all he talks about is how to help the victims. And he's not telling the men, just stop it. For me, what we still need to do, the new frontier, I think, in gender awareness would be to find the ways to really convince men to think differently, because so often the focus is on their victims and it's not on them, and they're the problem. Just as during lockdown, we didn't really talk about how irresponsible alcoholics were. We just talked about how much the sales of alcohol were hurting the economy. Yeah, we're all horrified by gender-based violence, but indeed, we sort of almost accept as normal men going out and just killing each other over over what? We don't know. But anyway, we assume it's never justified. So, yeah, a society where people get what they want through violence um, have a tendency to say, well, that's what the colonial experience taught everybody. You know, whoever's got the biggest gun is going to win. But um, But it's time to outgrow that. Yeah, I think we yeah, it really needs to be uh, included in in the agenda, and that's where yeah, I'm back to my statue of of all the women who were diplomats who healed the nations after the wars, who you know, brought people together and said, well, last year we fought and killed each other, but this year we're going to work together and 
I'm going to have children that are part of you and part of me, and we're going to build something new. Um, I would juxtapose the women's peaceful diplomatic roles with, with men's warlike attitudes, and perhaps it helps with that, that whole problem of violence. Today, we're talking to Professor Julia Wells, who is an Associate Professor Emeritus and Head of the Isikumbuzo Applied History Unit at Rhodes University. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Professor Wells, we're coming towards the end of the show, and one of the questions that I ask all my guests on this program who've made significant achievements in their respective disciplines is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. So whether it is a particular person in their life or um, the simple act of, of perseverance, what would you say have been some of your key drivers to success? Um, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it feels a little bit hard to answer sometime. Um, on, on the one hand, I could answer it in terms of just sort of outlook and attitude. And I would take it as advice I would give to any any young woman wondering where she's going, um, which is to say, just just always, always, always be ready to climb right out of the box. Think out of the box. The boxes that we've inherited are too confining. They're too narrow. They're too small. There is an alternative. There are other things that could happen. You You need to climb out of the box and be ready to build some new boxes or yeah, maybe you know, come with a better, a better, a better image. Build a nice park instead of a box. But to be, to not be afraid of change, not to be afraid of nonconformity to to a lot of the inherited ideas that we have. And I think that attitude in me was, uh, I would be fair to say, was was really promoted and cultivated by those kind of really powerful women activists that I met in the course of my research that they made so many commitments to stick with their beliefs and their values through thick and thin that they really ended up making making a huge difference in the world. And so that kind of steadfastness and clarity about what really matters in the world, I think, is very, very important. So I would say, yeah, find find role models that that really shine and yeah, don't be afraid to try something new. And in thinking about the female activists that you met, they had a bigger picture of view. They weren't thinking just about themselves. They were thinking about women and society as as a collective. Yes, well, absolutely. That, and that that would be exactly the reason why they would say that their own hardships and sacrifices didn't matter so much, because there was always a bigger picture, and. Yeah, and they would say they they understood that they were trying to impact um, society as a whole, and obviously, say the women leaders of the 1950s had that experience of let's say leading and marshalling that steam, that that energy of women that just simply could not be contained or stopped. So that is probably partly what gave them the strength was that they knew it was about everybody because they lived through it. And besides the key activists that you mentioned in the conversation today, have there been any other strong women in your life that have influenced and, and shaped you? 
Well, um, apart from the activists, which are, are, are a big category, I have to give a lot of credit to my mother. My mother was always sort of a writer and a poet and a very out-of-the-box person who always affirmed um, whatever I was trying to do and and would just give me um, the strength to, to, to keep on keeping on. Uh, similarly, I had a very good academic advisor. She'd been an expert on women's issues in East Africa, but then she took up um, the Southern African challenges, uh, I would say, in a, in a very big way. Totally accomplished, totally professional, very, very good, but in saying, whatever you do, you're going to, you're going to do it well. Um, so that was, that was also quite important. And growing up in your life, what would you say have been some of the pivotal moments that, that helped shape you? Hmm. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about that question. It's, uh, I, I don't feel like I've got a very good list of answers to that, but one thing that comes to mind that I, I have thought of very often was my parents raised me in a sort of a non-gender specific kind of way. I don't know. I had an older sister, but they decided that I was the one who needed um, boys' toys. So they'd buy me trucks and things like that to to play with as as a little kid. Anyway, one of the things that happened was that they they bought me, I I was in love with cowboy shows at the tender age of five. So they bought me a gun and holster set I went to kindergarten and participated in a competition to see who could draw their guns fastest, and I won. But then the teacher said something like, but this is not appropriate for a girl. And I think that caused me a lot of distress at the age of five, and I suspect it made me feel like, well, I'm sorry, but I won that competition. I can draw as fast as the boys. Um, That wasn't fair. So you might summarize it as experiencing gender discrimination at a very young age, um, a contrast between what I was learning at home and what I learned at school. I think otherwise pivotal moments, um, when I think about how I got involved in my research, what really made the difference was I was living in New York City and I had opportunities to meet quite prominent black South African women leaders. And so I talked to them about the idea of doing this research and they all said, do it, do it, do it, do it. We will help you find people. We will put you in touch. We'll do whatever it takes because we want our stories to be told. Um, So that kind of support and confidence from people who've really felt there was a danger their stories wouldn't be told was very important to me. And then maybe I'll include with another pivotal great moment, resharing with, with other people who, who were part of it. But I was part of a group of young women in Durban 40 years ago who are now bravely making the claim that we resurrected Women's Day. 40 years ago, it was 1980. It was the time I was doing my PhD research. It was the year that Lillian Ngoy died, and the young women got together and they said, nobody in Durban knows who Lillian Ngoy was. It's a terrible thing. 
we should um, we should do something about it as the few academics who actually do know something about that history. Long and short of it was we put together a photographic exhibition with the help of Omar Badshah uh, using photos that I'd gathered in my research. Um, it was a time when meetings were banned. Nobody was allowed to come and give speeches anywhere. We put up our photographic exhibition in central Durban explaining everything about the 1956 march. The moment, the pivotal moment, was when the security police came. They walked through the whole exhibition at the end of it. They said, well, you outsmarted us this time, but we'll get you next time. And they stomped away. There was nothing they could do. So there was that, 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 that moment of satisfaction. We had educated the public. We had done our thing, and they couldn't touch us. Fantastic stories to to share and and thanks for for sharing some of your history and how it's been intertwined into the country's history. Mm. Lastly, as we close out the conversation today, could you please share a, a few words of inspiration or message of hope to young women listening to us on the continent? Well, I think the best advice I could give to young women is, on the one hand, never underestimate the hidden and unacknowledged power that women have. I really do think women have exceptional power, which I believe really does come from their life-producing roles, um, that it has been unacknowledged probably forever and forever and forever, but to just feel confident that there is real power there. And out of that confidence, then um, let women stand together and assist each other in every way that they can. And then I think finally, what I've already referred to is keep looking for ways to talk to men until they get sorted out. Men could be much better than they are. So I think we owe it to them to help them a little. Thank you so much for such practical tips, which, if applied, can drive transformation. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the air. Sure. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, good luck with all your other efforts. We look forward to seeing the fruits of the inspired generations of young women. Likewise. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Julia Wells, who is an Associate Professor Emeritus and Head of the Isikumbuzo Applied History Unit at Rhodes University.